1: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. For many people in the rich world, death is an abstraction, not a topic for polite conversation. But the pandemic has them increasingly thinking and talking about their own mortality, bringing them more in line with how many cultures have long dealt with death. And you can always find a staggering variety of cheap street food in Singapore's famed hawker centers. But maybe not for long. The short-order chef Old Guard is dying off, and a new generation is struggling to set out its stall. First up, though. In Beijing today, China's leadership will wrap up discussions of the country's next five year plan. The fifth plenum, as this meeting is known, lays out a long list of economic and social policy goals. At the time of the last one, in 2016, President Xi Jinping reiterated the party's key target for 2020 of achieving a moderately prosperous society measures of prosperity have certainly been on the up. And while the rest of the world economy will shrink this year, China's will grow, moderately. The new five-year plan will have to accommodate a world battered by COVID-19 and a trading environment battered by the tensions with America. The fine details won't be made public for some time. The meeting is really just a formality for the country's rubber-stamp parliament. Within those five-year plans, though, lie big clues. This time, in particular, to how long Mr. C intends to stay in power.
2: The five-year plans are uh, an inheritance, if you will, from the Soviet Union.
1: Simon Rabinovich is our Asia economics editor and is based in Shanghai.
2: They used to be extremely rigid, where the party would set out production quotas for things like steel and grain. Over the last few decades, they, they've become much more like rough guides as to what the party is aiming to do over the next five years. You can almost think of them like election manifestos. But of course, given that there's no elections in China, the same party is in power. One manifesto builds on top of the previous one.
1: And so how does that handover look to you? Did they deliver on the, on the last one? And, and what's in this one?
2: The single most important element of the five-year plans, the thing that everything else revolves around, is the growth target. Last time around, their target was that they would average roughly 6.5% growth annually. they actually highly unusual for for the party. they missed that this year because of the COVID pandemic and and what that has done to the economy. Um, So they came up just short of it. And so going into the next five-year plan, not because of the pandemic, but more because of the very hostile external environment that China now believes it, it finds itself in. They're likely to set a much lower growth target. Some people speculate that they might not even set one at all. I guess the, the basic estimate is that they might go for something like roughly five percent annual growth. So it's it's a big step down from the previous plan, but the big thing for the party is that they still see this as the plan that will help to propel the economy and the country
1: forward. And so given what what's been said at at the plenum how does China plan to to deal with both the, the ring down from the pandemic and this hostile environment
2: Well apart from the GDP target the big thing about the plans often is the sort of philosophy that underpins them this time around the underpinning philosophy is is something that's been coined the dual circulation strategy, which I know sounds like a bit of a mouthful, but it's, it's quite significant. Previously, China talked about the great international circulation, the idea of linking the Chinese economy to the global economy and benefiting from that linkage. Now, the dual circulation is adding in this idea of the great domestic circulation, which is really developing the domestic economy, developing domestic demand and production, and ensuring that China is going to be strong enough to withstand the variety of external pressures and problems that it's now facing. Cynically, some people would say, well, it's just old wine in new bottles. China has talked a lot about uh, self-reliance in the past, about developing domestic demand. But the fact is, I mean, the environment is clearly much more hostile from China's perspective. It's more than just promoting domestic consumption. Uh, It's about trying to advance uh, in a whole range of sectors, trying to secure advanced technologies for China and building up a domestic economy that ultimately can stand
1: on its own two feet and is that a realistic goal is is looking inward in that way going to protect uh, it, it from the the fears it sees outside its borders well, it's a goal that comes with clear
2: risks uh, in that, you know, no economy, no matter how large uh, in terms of size, is actually able to be self-sufficient. That's, that's the nature of globalization today, of globalization that China has benefited from tremendously, is that all economies are, are interlinked. But it is understandable, given the tensions between China and America in, in the past couple of years, given the fact that a growing number of countries seem to be falling more in line with America's view of China than, than of China's view of China. It's understandable that China is quite worried about the rest of the world turning against it. You've seen in other planning documents, uh, officials talking about the need for self-reliance. A popular term these days is the idea of which is stranglehold technology. The idea that there's specific technologies that if America or others don't export them to China, China's development could basically be stopped. So there is therefore a belief that they need to develop things, be it semiconductors, be it machine tools that will allow China to withstand that kind of blockade were it to develop. China's clearly not there. It still has quite a way to go to to achieve that sort of self-sufficiency. It'll be costly to try to get there. But nevertheless, as a goal, as an objective, this is something that they're very much focused on.
1: But if one of the facets of this is America's view of China, that for the past few years has meant Donald Trump's view of China. Do you, do you see the U.S. election changing the sort of the overall shape of this?
2: Yeah, there, there's an interesting parlor game that's often played about, you know, whether China would rather see Biden or Trump get elected. And you can make a case either way. You could argue that Trump is going to speed up America's demise, but he's also going to be much more hawkish towards China. Or you could say that Biden might be softer on China, but he might actually be more effective in rallying the rest of the world to oppose China. So, you know, it's hard to say which outcome China would actually prefer to see.
1: Do you foresee any hints in, in what's going to come out about, uh, about the leadership of China and how that may change?
2: Well, yes and no, in the sense that, uh, you know, nobody expects any change in the leadership. Uh, You know, two years ago, the constitution was changed to allow Xi Jinping to stay in power beyond two terms, which which previously was the uh, basic limit. No successor has been appointed. It's interesting that actually, roughly at this exact point 10 years ago, uh, at another similar plenum, Xi Jinping got a position which made it clear beyond a shadow of a doubt that he was going to be the next big leader Nobody has been placed in a similar position. But what we might see is that within the plan, which is, of course, a five-year plan, they'll also talk about a vision for 2035, a 15-year plan, if you will. Now, that's the midway mark from today until 2049 of the goal of making China a, quote, great modern socialist country. But what's significant about highlighting 2035 now is that it seems to signal that Xi Jinping believes that uh, in some shape or form, he will still be running the show uh, in 15 years' time.
1: Simon, thanks very much for joining us.
2: Thank you, Jason.
0: What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise.
1: COVID-19 has taken lives in nearly every country on Earth. In total, nearly 1.2 million people have died, with a disproportionate share in the world's richer countries. The specter of death is always around, but a global pandemic has cast its shadow over the wealthy world in a way not seen since the Second World War. And that is spurring broad, fast changes in attitudes towards mortality.
3: So we are called Friedwald, and in German that means forest of peace.
1: Carola Wackermeister works for a forest burial company near Frankfurt in Germany.
3: People considered us pretty crazy in the beginning. So we have here a tabloid, and they headlined, oh, crazy, those people are offering burial sites underneath of trees. But the idea was that people would find the forest, very much more comforting than the normal cemetery.
1: She says interest has soared during the pandemic.
3: I think it really has to do with the need to get things arranged to be sure to be on the safe side.
4: So I went to that forest near Frankfurt, and the demand that people like Corolla are seeing is actually part of a much broader trend.
1: Avantika Chulkoti is The Economist's international correspondent.
4: The coronavirus has made everybody much more aware of our own mortality. And um, that sort of means we're thinking about how we want to go and then also planning for it. I also spoke in the UK to a couple who run a funeral company, and they've run it for decades. They spend lots of time with grieving families. They spend lots of times with cadavers but they really only got round to writing their wills this year. They're sort of hugely embarrassed about it, but it basically took a pandemic for them to really acknowledge their own mortality.
1: And so part of the broader trend is is not just planning for, but, but talking about death.
4: Yeah, exactly. So it, it's something that people in the West are often quite squeamish about, nervous about. There was recently a survey in Germany where almost everyone agreed it's really important to acknowledge mortality, Doctors and therapists actually say in your final moments, if you've had those difficult conversations with your family, you're often less anxious and less alone. But in the survey in Germany, 90% of people said that they were awkward and they didn't know how to behave around someone who was dying. There are people trying to change this, organizations trying to create a conversation, particularly in the rich world. The host always starts the Death Café by talking a little bit about the history and about the ground rules, and then asks people why they've come. For the story, I interviewed Susan Barsky-Reed, who runs Death Cafés. They were actually set up by her son, John, and the idea is to get people together to talk about mortality. The point is that people have no agenda except that they're talking about death and dying, so that it comes from the participants rather than from the host, the topics that actually emerge. But the main change has been that it's become virtual.
3: Yeah, I think it's like I say, it's good that the great grandkids and that kind of stuff, so
4: People aren't actually able to meet at the moment, but this certainly hasn't stopped death cafes from being held. In fact, probably, it's increased. And the interesting thing is now that you will get participants from all over the world rather than just from your local area coming together, which adds a whole new dimension to the Death Cafe. Yeah, and I heard really great
3: stories about it. So.
4: Yeah, me too. She was a great
1: woman. You've mentioned the Western world, the rich world, more than once. Is is this trend universal?
4: Well, that's what's really interesting. This is sort of an area where the West can learn from developing countries. In lots of poor countries, for unfortunate reasons like poverty and lack of access to health services, people are much more accustomed to being around death. And sometimes their customs sort of embrace death. The most striking example I know is the Tana Tarajans in Indonesia, A Tarajan family might keep the corpse of a family member in the family home for years as they save up for a funeral. The funerals themselves are these huge, lavish celebrations that end with the slaughter of Buffalo, who is sort of supposed to offer sustenance to the spirit as it moves into the next world. Even then, after this big funeral, that's not the end of it. Every year, the Tanarajans bring the corpses out of graves, back into the family home. They dress them and wash them. They throw a big party. And more recently, actually, there's a custom of taking selfies with deceased family members. That's quite an extreme example of people in the developing world being familiar with and being around death. But actually, even if you think of a country like India or other developing countries... People often have elderly family members at home, which means that they see someone in their final moments. They're close to someone who might pass away, whereas often in the rich world now, people are dying in hospitals, in hospices, in nursing homes, which means that the rest of us, people who are young and healthy, might never actually get that close to death until their own time comes.
1: And is that true also among people who perhaps haven't lost a loved one to to COVID nineteen, who haven't been part, uh, newly part of the, of the of the medical system because of all this?
4: So one thing I find fascinating is how even if you are not affected by the coronavirus, the world around you is very clearly changing. There's a school of psychology called terror management theory. And the idea there is that what sets human beings apart from other animals is our own awareness of our mortality. And life then becomes a constant struggle to try and distract from that. When you have a big natural disaster, when you have a war, when you have something like a pandemic... What happens is that we're all even more aware of our mortality. They call it increased mortality salience. And that has lots of effects. It causes people to try and distract themselves. Things like drinking and eating lots of snacks, which you might all have noticed in in lockdown. Even things like trying to find some purpose in life, trying to sort of attach meaning to sort of a greater good than just yourself. Even simple things like us all trying to bake sourdough could be construed as us trying to find some purpose in our lives. There's been some studies more recently saying that when we're aware of our own mortality, people also want to stand up for their principles a bit more. So even if you haven't lost someone, and even if you yourself are healthy, the world around you is very much affected by increased mortality salience.
1: But what about in in the absence of of that sort of immediate sense once the pandemic passes? do Do you think this trend will continue just the same?
4: Well, actually, like a lot of things this year, in the area of mortality and death, coronavirus has just spurred changes that were already occurring. So the idea of sort of a very formal funeral is very Victorian. It's a very sort of early 20th century construct. And what you see like in that sort of natural burial forest in Germany is people were already moving away from that. You already had a new generation who are considering the environmental impacts of burials. And so you already had people trying to rethink that sort of question of how do we want to pass, and this has just sped that up.
1: Avantika, thank you very much for your time. Thanks for having me. Some countries build monuments or temples to their greatness. Singapore builds hawker centers.
3: These are open-air food courts lined with food stalls and grimy formica tables.
1: Charlie McCann is our Southeast Asia correspondent.
3: There's really no better symbol of the city's history and identity Dolloped on a plate or a scroll of banana leaf, you'll encounter dishes like rojak or laksa. These are dishes that evoke the Chinese and Indian migrants who brought with them their own cuisines, which very gradually, over centuries, mingled with that of native Malays. Singapore is so proud of this street food that it hopes that UNESCO will someday include it in its catalogue of humanity's most precious arts.
1: And how realistic is that hope?
3: Well, the UN's bureaucrats had better get a taste of this food while they still can. The median age of hawker chefs is 60, and when many of these chefs die, they actually are taking their recipes with them. A government report published in 2017 warned that there were too few aspiring hawkers to be able to sustain the hawker trade in the long run. The problem is compounded by the fact that only Singaporean citizens can work in hawker centers managed by the government, which is the vast majority. And it seems that young Singaporeans have very little appetite for working in this trade.
1: Why is that if it's so embedded in the culture?
3: Many don't relish the idea of working very long hours in stifling hot tiny little hawker stalls and the few young Singaporeans who are willing to put up with such working conditions often have a really hard time of it. I met Douglas Ng who runs a stall called A Fishball Story and he said it was really hard at the beginning. I had the same problem
2: for first two years, no profit. Hmm. I didn't have much allowance for myself.
3: He made only enough to cover his food and transport costs. Yeah,
2: that's all. No salary, but nobody will believe because they see long queue at my store every day.
3: Yeah.
1: And so why is it that it's so hard for young hawkers, for any hawkers, to make ends meet?
3: Well, older hawkers have an unfair advantage. Many of those who started out in the 70s and the 80s pay subsidized rent, about $200 a month. By contrast, younger generations, so people like Douglas Ng, they pay market rates, On average, six times as much.
1: So what about making fancier food, selling it for more money? Is that a route to actual profit margins?
3: No. Hawker food is really cheap. So a classic dish like chicken rice costs around just over $2. And the government really wants to keep it that way. Singapore's welfare state is miserly. So when I spoke to Douglas, he said that one of the problems is that consumers also expect hawker food... To be incredibly affordable.
0: Hawker center selling price are very sensitive. If you go slightly more expensive, their people will spread the news,
2: and you get in trouble. Yeah.
3: He said that in 2013, not long after he started out, he decided to increase the price of his three-dollar fishball soup by fifty cents because his profit margins were just so thin. And when he did that, sales fell by half. But he persisted, and a few years later, he won a prestigious Michelin Bib Gourmand Award. And that led to a flood of offers from investors. But not everyone is given a Michelin Bib
1: Award. So the old guard is dying off, and the younger generation can't seem to make its way, yet this is part of the government's social safety net. I mean, something has to give here, doesn't it?
3: Yeah, you're absolutely right. The government recognizes that this is a problem and is trying to resolve it by, for instance, launching training programs for young hawkers and by leasing subsidized stall spaces to a select handful. But it's clearly not enough. And if something more drastic isn't done, we may see this culinary culture dying out.
1: Charlie, thanks very much for joining us.
3: Thank you, Jason.
1: You'll find plenty more perspectives like this from our international network of correspondents in The Economist. Get a great introductory deal on a subscription by going to economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. That's it from us. See you back here tomorrow.